I'm Tyler Hake, and you're listening to Season 1, Episode 1 of Next Story Up, a Smart Building Services podcast by Schneider Electric. Act 1, A Game of Nodes. Game of Thrones, by any measure, is one of the most popular entertainment series of all time. Based on George R.R. Martin's book series, which was actually called A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones now reaches over 25 million viewers per episode. It debuted on HBO in 2011 and had surpassed The Sopranos as the most popular series on that network ever by 2014. The most recent premiere for Game of Thrones brought in 16.1 million viewers at the time of the broadcast, who sent 2.4 million tweets during the episode. It's popular, it's influential, it's both producer and product of our new entertainment culture. It would be hard for me to believe that you, my dear listener, know nothing about Game of Thrones, but I suppose that's possible. With so much exposure and influence, so much viewership and so much content engagement, it's about as widespread as widespread can be. But let's say you or someone you know doesn't know the very first thing about Game of Thrones. How would you describe it to them? How should I describe it to you? What's it all about? For most people, it's about a mythical land called Westeros, and bear with me because this is about to get extremely nerdy. But Westeros is inhabited by warring, medieval-like banners that have, let's just say, a checkered past with one another. There's the Starks, they live in the north, they're always worried about the weather, there's plenty of memes about that. The Lannisters, the beautiful, blonde, corrupt family of privilege in Westeros. They happen to have killed the Starks' patriarch. Sorry for spoilers, but this has been on for like eight years. There's the Baratheons. I don't really know what to make of them. They're not very good at the game. They're constantly outplayed. They had a king who was best friends with a guy from the Stark. He was also killed by the Lannisters. He died during a boar hunt. That's the kind of family we're talking about, the Baratheons. There's the savage, barbarian Dothraki tribe. Horsemen in the mold of Mongol conquerors. They married a Targaryen into their ranks. The Targaryens, of course, are best known for Daenerys. She is the mother of dragons, breaker of chains, Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, queen of the Andals, so on and so forth. There's the Ironborn. They're dirty seafarers. They have to drown to live, if that makes sense. The Dorn, the Tyrells. There's all sorts of families. You get the idea. I'm going to stop here. I fully expect a wave of comments from the diehards out there looking to critique my description of the families. I get it. But in general, the following is really how most people would describe Game of Thrones. Rival banners with unique histories, powers, and characteristics battling for supremacy, or the Iron Throne, where the king or queen of one of these families will sit to govern all others. You might be wondering what Game of Thrones has to do with a podcast series about embracing smart building services. But the truth is that in modern day human technology systems, we play a very similar game, which today I am calling the Game of Nodes. I know, I know, it's the coolest thing you've ever heard. This Game of Nodes affects our society in a much more direct way than the HBO Game of Thrones series, but certainly less people overall are aware of the intricacies. How would you describe this game we play to someone who hasn't tuned in? Well, first, you'd have to describe the boundaries. There are games of nodes being played in many tech industries, and the banners have overlap, but never are really truly the same. 
the smartphone banners, for example, might have Apple and Google and Samsung. In industrial automation, the largest banners might be held by Schneider Electric, ABB, Siemens, Emerson, GE, and Rockwell. You'd have different arrays of banners in each industry, from switchgear, data centers, grid infrastructure, manufacturing processes, just to start naming off a few. But basically, different territories, different banners, different games. So the first thing you'd have to do is define, what is my Westeros? In this industry, in this series, in this episode, our Westeros is automated buildings, and the largest banners might be held by names like Schneider Electric, Siemens, Johnson Controls, Honeywell, Tritium, and Automated Logic, among others, just to name a few. I'll leave it up to the building operators, design engineers, installing contractors to list banners and describe the traits of each of them for me, as I did with Game of Thrones. Perhaps it's better that I don't know their answers. Perhaps it's better that I don't say anything about the companies. But I don't want this episode to turn into the Red Wedding, for those of you that like Game of Thrones, in the opening stanza for the entire series. But what then is the game of nodes in our Westeros of building automation? What are the goals? Would you describe it as which companies can reign supreme in controlling the most market share of building systems? Maybe that's a fair analogy. Whosoever controls the most building automation nodes sits on the throne, right? And has there been strategy and intrigue? Of course. Mercifully, there's been less nudity. But over decades, we've had plenty of evolutions just as in Game of Thrones and how to battle for position in the market. For us, that might be shifts in communication networks from proprietarily closed to more open, industry-standard frameworks, or simple improvements in technology brought to the market in hardware capabilities or by graphical interfaces that have changed over time, or shifts to mobile or remote variations of control systems away from previously held fixed mainframe solution stations. In general, every year, Each banner comes out with a better way to control things than they've had previously and competes in our Westeros under these new rules, as defined by market and societal trends and pressures. It's not always pretty, but it always moves forward. You wouldn't be criticized by many people if you concluded that the largest market share of devices or buildings controlled is the final end-state goal for our game of nodes, just as the Iron Throne is the final end-state goal for the series Game of Thrones. You would not be criticized by many people, but you would be wrong. There's another facet to George R.R. Martin's A Song of Fire and Ice in HBO's Game of Thrones that is particularly fascinating, which is that the throne has been paramount for a very, very long time, but it is only paramount conditionally. And that condition is provided Westeros hasn't been overrun by murderous, frozen, zombie-skeleton undead invaders called White Walkers. The Night King and his army of White Walkers are the reason the Stark family is always so wary of the weather and why you see so many memes. Their family is the first line of defense on the island against the marauding, frozen foot soldiers of change. We don't yet know exactly who the Night King is. I mean, let's face it, he's Bran or what he wants with the territory, just that his army threatens to disrupt at best and devour, at worst, the entire order of Westeros. Put simply, every intricate, strategic move each banner has made to secure the throne over months, years, decades, and centuries, every enhancement, 
stroke of luck or timing, marriage and merger, special decision or cunning attack, will not matter if the territory of Westeros can't successfully combat the urgent and approaching outside threat of White Walkers. The true story of Game of Thrones is that the battle our combatants are prepared for, used to, passionate about, familiar with, born and bred to fight, the one for the throne is, while important, not the real battle. The true story is that winter is coming, and whether or not Westeros is prepared is anyone's guess. If you're playing the game of nodes as I am, it is my assertion that our Westeros also faces disruption at best and being devoured at worst. The question I pose today is, how best does our industry prepare for our own coming revolution? Not of bloodthirsty frozen zombies, but of data-thirsty analytics platforms and increasing occupant expectations. A discussion around this question and the introduction of our first ever guest will follow in Act 2. Act 2. Love it, hate it, want to talk about it. Ben Norman, you are the Execution Leader for Strategic Technologies Incubation at Schneider Electric. In this role, you lead new technology innovation, incubation, and delivery of cutting-edge technology platforms. You have experience with technical topics like machine learning, data science, and cloud. You are a member of the Harvard Alumni Association and a contributor to the MIT CIO Symposium. I concluded the first act of our podcast today with a comparison between rising challenges in our industry and a popular entertainment series that features undead ice zombies and dragons. I called it Game of Nodes. Let's start with this comparison. Do you love it or hate it? And do you want to talk about it? <laughs> so Tyler, I don't know if you remember about a month ago, you and I were in O'Hare Airport in Chicago and I drew um, literally a back of the napkin sketch of I do, something. I do, do remember that? I do remember. Yes, I do. Yeah. Some of the things that I was drawing on that napkin are literally called nodes. So I think <laughs> your, uh, your name and your approach is perfectly accurate. I don't know if that was intentional or subconscious or if we have some sort of psychic link going on. Ooh, maybe we've got a psychic link. <laughs> um, so that's how I feel about the, the name for sure. Yeah, good, good. So we've got approval. I'm one for one on analogies with guests. Perfect. All right. Well, so I, I'm, I'm really happy to have you here today. Obviously, you've got this incredible background. I'd like to uh, start asking you some questions. So um, in the buildings industry, you know, the goals we have involve things like efficiency and optimization, traditionally really focused on energy and resource optimization, and, and more and more these days focused more on things like occupant centricity and occupant experience. So uh, the idea is to find ways to provide connected systems and smart services that that make the building experience better, healthier, safer, et cetera. So my question for you as somebody that's involved in technology incubation is when you're incubating uh, an innovation, are you completely removed from that um, and just considering technology in isolation or how, how does that work? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So the, the intent of innovating is not to solve a problem that nobody has, right? You want to solve problems that are actually affecting people, whether they consciously recognize that a problem exists or that things could be better or not. The intention is to address a real problem. And you can't just go off and 
and build some random technology without some sort of end game in mind, some actual problem that you're trying to solve. Where in the technology chain that problem lies definitely varies, whether it's you know customer facing and user facing um, or public facing, or if it's something further up in the technology stack. And you never want to do things in a vacuum. You always want to do things targeted towards a real problem. And I can tell you in our innovation process and incubation process, we continually check in with our stakeholders for whatever project we're working on. So we'll take some requirements, we'll talk about the problem we're trying to solve, we'll go off, we'll build something, and then a couple of weeks later, we'll come back and say, this is what we built, are we on track? Is this gonna solve the problem that we have? Or do we need to pivot and do something different? So it's really a continual collaborative process. Okay. And I think that can become a bit of a blind spot in the buildings industry. And I'm assuming in many others where you might lose track of that collaboration because we tend to get lost in tech for the sake of tech and thinking that every customer might equally immediately benefit from glitzy utilizations of the IoT or big data or the cloud just because the tech exists and we're all excited about it. You know, why wouldn't somebody want what we feel is best in class? Well, sometimes they're not ready or they might not have staff or a data culture that can embrace change, that kind of thing. So the underlying technology infrastructure winds up being the most durable investment. Exactly. So if we think about about a technology stack, there's always some underlying platform or capabilities that enable an experience. So if we just take the internet, for example, the internet on its own doesn't do much. It's just essentially a series of tubes, right? Um, It's kind of a joke, but in reality, it it really is a series of tubes, (laughs) underwater wires and and fiber optics and stuff. So that's kind of the foundational layer. And then on top of that, you have the World Wide Web. And on top of that, you have different applications like, like Facebook and Google and so on, right? So it's all about building the underlying technologies that enable those experiences at the higher levels. So if I'm a a building owner and I've got a a building automation system in place, let's say it's just a a backnet system, doesn't need to be uh, necessarily by Schneider Electric or anybody else, I could really view what I have there as a platform to potentially innovate off of moving forward. So as some of these new technologies take hold and I start to hear about things like cloud and the Internet of Things and analytics and machine learning, Mm-hmm. The idea is, should I have that infrastructure in place correctly, ultimately, I might be able to do some innovation incubation on my own, where I decide that I'm going to pursue some type of analytic platform that's going to look at my energy consumption. And then I can work that off of my building automation platform. Yeah, absolutely. So if you have sensors and different technologies installed in the building, what you can do with that after the fact is is all... Um, enabled by that infrastructure that you put in place and the platforms that you have in place. So if you're really trying to innovate and create new experience for your building occupants, create new experiences for say visitors or just make the building more comfortable, those are all going to kind of sit on top of the stuff that you put in place. Okay. Um, Yeah. No, that's in the buildings industry. What's so exciting about it right now is, you know, among other things, you know, you have all of this digital information at your fingertips now, more and more different types of devices are being connected. You can integrate experiences between historically disparate systems like temperature control or lighting or elevator destination dispatch and stuff like that and kind of really build one of these platforms that, that, that laces all of this stuff together and then might give you that, uh, that infrastructural setting to do some really cool things on top. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's kind of cool to, to think about the things that we're doing today in 2019 that are 
kind of the conversation of the day. They're building off of stuff that's been in place for 30, 40, 50 years in some cases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the internet itself was actually a DARPA project. And then it was incubated, I think, at the University of Hawaii. And then Tim Berners-Lee built the World Wide Web on top of it, which is kind of an application slash platform. So that does show like from government to a private citizen to now lots of public nonprofits that essentially run the internet. That's the whole chain of technology. And what's really interesting is uh, when we consider open source things, obviously there's a lot of private proprietary technology, but open source, which has become a lot more popular and a lot more prevalent in the past 10, 15 years, I'll say, it really enables really beautiful things to be built on things that everybody has access to rather than just a few uh, companies and private institutions. Yeah, and it's extensible too, right? So if you if you were to invest in a, a building platform today, it's probably going to be in place for 15, 20, 30 years. And, and we see how fast technology evolves and, and how often people come up with really new cool ways to use systems or, or technologies. The, the fact that you can have open, connectable, extensible systems really should give you some peace of mind for the investment that you're making and what you'll be able to do with it over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's great. It's, it's awesome to know that there are guys like you that get to work on this stuff every day and, and that our industry is, has evolved into something that is thinking about this type of conversation. So that's wonderful. Um, all right, in the lead-in you know, today, I, I also talked about how you know, we've got this coming wave in our industry in which analytic platforms will be using building data in all sorts of different ways. We don't even know what all those ways will be at this point, but they'll be using it. Our industry is evolving into this software-focused digital future that will integrate historically disparate systems, as we mentioned, and incorporate different IoT devices and implement different data analytic services and what have you. So all of us in the industry are going to be charged to do this with our BAS platforms. As a technology specialist uh, who dives into the future all the time, how do you suggest companies and teams wrap their arms around these new seemingly Herculean challenges with, with all these tasks and topics? Uh, you know, what kind of processes and, and methods do you lean on? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. The first thing I'll start with is a principle that we use on our team. And when I, when I first joined this team, my manager made it very clear to me that we never use the word impossible. It's literally outlawed. <laughs> we are not allowed to say it to each other. We're not allowed to to think that something is impossible because everything is actually possible. Right? <laughs> okay. It may just be that some things are infeasible or less feasible than others, but being in an incubation and innovation, you really need to have an appetite for for things that are difficult and things that are not well-defined and are ambiguous. And I can tell you when we when we hire people onto our team and we look for people to work with us on innovation and incubation activities, we look for this quality around being able to handle ambiguity and being able to, to think about things that don't exist and really make something from nothing and think about very almost abstract futures. So even in 10 or 20 years, just the way that we occupy a building could be so much different and the way the buildings look and function, what we're there for, what kind of technologies in them, it could be vastly different, right? So if you're trying to plan out your investments in, in a building or a set of facilities in your, your whole operation, 
um, you need to have a really kind of grand vision. I wouldn't say that you need to have it really well defined, but at least have a vision of what you see in the future and how you want your people to be working with each other and what kind of experiences and enablement you want for them and to get from their building. Do you want it to be a really comfortable environment? Do you want them to have a lot of sort of organic collisions with each other? Do you want there to be a lot of collaboration? Is, do you want them there to be more um, solo work? Those can all be influenced by the technology that you put in your building. And at a lower level, the technology that you build all that stuff on top of. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a lot of imagination and creativity there, which is obviously what we want to espouse at our company and also, of course, on this podcast. Uh, and it reminded me of an anecdote I heard recently, which was basically along the lines of, if Alexander Graham Bell saw a typical phone today, he would have no idea what he was looking at. But if Thomas Edison walked into a power plant, he would feel right at home. And similarly, I try to reflect on that as often as I can when I walk into new or different buildings. Many buildings experiences or interactions we have with the facility um, today from an occupant perspective are just about the same as they were uh, half a century ago, uh, if not more. I think since all of us spend so much time in buildings, it's harder to shake that standard because it's so prevalent and ubiquitous. But man, just imagine if everyone was reconsidering and repurposing space experiences like we've done with phones. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say not to shy away from big problems and big ambitions. So one thing I've been thinking about recently is, is Uber and Lyft. And Uber has been around for about 10 years. I think they were founded in 2009. And... When they first started, they didn't they didn't set out and just create UberX, Uberpool, Uber Eats, and all the different services at once, right? They created one service, which I think was around like limousines actually, got that right, really worked on that that core experience and that core functionality, and then iterated, built more, expanded their scope, and kept building this kind of massive platform that they have now. And what they're really trying to solve is an entire logistics op optimization problem. So if you approach your building's management and your building's vision in the same way, you can kind of decompose it into smaller components, I would say, and think about small technology uh, advancements you can make or that you really want to achieve. And then uh, once you do each of those in sequence, then you'll have this grand vision that's been built over time. And it's important that you can kind of decompose that vision into smaller parts. So start somewhere optimize that, get an understanding for that first beachhead that you have into maybe a new technology that you know could expand further, but but start there and, and grasp that with maybe almost like a minimum viable product. Exactly, exactly. So I would choose whatever is the most important to work on first and whatever you think you can actually accomplish. So if getting temperature regulation in the building is the most important thing, might give you the most energy savings, um, might make your people the most happy, do that. Focus on that first. Don't focus on something that's going to be like cool, but not that useful, right? You don't want to waste your time on something that's trivial. So choose something that's going to be important, but you can definitely bite it off and actually get it and get it solved. Yeah. And then once you go through that experience by, let's say, optimizing how you're going to uh, handle energy and, and save energy there, then once you've gone through that, you might be able to look at something else in your building portfolio that you could optimize, like uh, consumption of different types of resources or even efficiency with how people uh, pathfind their way through your facility because you've gone through that once and it's maybe becomes a little bit more repeatable. I would say the the biggest thing as we as we design technology and platforms for um, our enterprise and for our end customers, 
the biggest thing we think about is what is this actually going to enable? What is this? What is the experience that we're trying to create, and is this going to deliver it? Right. So I guess this kind of is what I was saying before. But don't build something that nobody cares about. <laughs> right. Um, right. That's that's kind of the the agile methodology, and why in IT we stop using waterfall as a project management principle because you go off and build something for two years and come back and nobody wanted it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so it's all about short, quick iterations, learning quickly, getting feedback continuously, and those kinds of things. So I can imagine in the building space, getting continuous feedback from your occupants about. Do they like the space? What's wrong? What what bothers them? What improvements would they like to see? Doing that on kind of a continual basis would be really useful. That makes a lot of sense. So do you think that the the, the buildings technology industry presents itself as fertile ground for innovation uh, and for innovative minds? I mean, I, 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 I feel like I can anticipate your answer, but I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more of your thoughts there. <laughs> Definitely. So um, are you familiar with Moore's Law? Yes, I am. Okay. So as a, as a refresher, uh, Moore's Law is the idea that I think every 18 months, the number of transistors on a chip can double, right? So essentially the power of a computing entity can double every 18 months. That doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like the computing power enables basically everything else that we have in our lives now. So the fact that our underlying technology, like I mentioned before, is getting more and more powerful is gonna enable a lot more creative, newer, delightful, and interesting experiences within a building, you know, up through the technology stack, right? So I think the the potential for really cool stuff to happen in the in the building space is absolutely there, kind of built on the back of the underlying advancements in technology. So that's that's one thing around computing power itself. And if we look kind of in the middle of that stack, there are some things around the way that you would interact with your building whether it's through voice and conversation or maybe a chat window on your phone to communicate with your building on where you want the temperature to go up or down. That kind of thing is enabled by these really wonderful platforms that are being developed and maturing now. So things around machine learning and artificial intelligence, um, around the data itself, like uh, with knowledge graphs and ontology, which is a really nerdy topic I won't go super into, <laughs> yeah. um, but that is kind of what we discussed in, in the airport. I'm a fan <laughs> of ontology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but if, if you think about the kind of experiences those technologies would enable, you could walk into your building, say you have an office building, you walk in on the bottom floor, you just say out loud, hey, please call the elevator, turn the lights on the conference room on the seventh floor, lower the temperature a little bit because I'm expecting six or 10 people in the conference room. Like that is totally possible. And um, all the technology that we're developing now is going to make those experiences really seamless and enjoyable. Have you ever heard the William Gibson quote of um, the future is already here. It just isn't evenly distributed yet. Ooh, I like that. I've yeah. not heard Do that. You, would, you, would you ascribe to that based on the stuff that you're looking at? You think that the possibilities are here and maybe aren't you know, commonly used in buildings at this point? I would say so. That's a good point. So consumer electronics, for example, stuff that you can do on your phone, what you can ask Siri to do or the Google Assistant, like Alexa in your home, those kinds of things are already at the consumer level, yeah. but in sort of a commercial building and manufacturing setting, the technology does exist. So I would, I would challenge the listeners to come up with really creative experiences that they want in that area of technology and with those technologies enabling it. 
come up with some cool things that you think would be awesome and really useful and fun and would make your day a bit, a bit better and a bit more fun. Yeah. Um, and and I think about how to make it happen. I'm sure that they would challenge you to make sure that we have building platforms that are flexible and extensible so that when those things come through that we're ready to, to implement them. And I know that that's what you're, you know, you're working on all the time. So that's really great. All right. So this is what I'm going to, this is how we'll finish off today, Ben. I, I'm going to probably try and do this with every guest that I've got. I'm going to postulate this for you. I'm someone listening to this podcast right now. So I'm just your regular building occupant. Why, why should I be excited about a future of smart buildings with connected services? Yeah. Well, personally, I love it when I walk into a building and something cool happens. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. Even it's so trivial now, but when I walked into this conference room and I'm in, the lights came on, the thermostat came on and showed me what temperature it was. It showed me that, that the air is, is on, the fan is on or something. Even these like small experiences, they're just fun. You know, being surrounded by, by technology that is trying to make your life better, it's fun. And when you go home and you say, Alexa, turn on um, death metal or bluegrass or whatever you listen to, that's uh, just my personal taste. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, whatever it is, the, that's, those are the things that make it really fun to, to be around technology and be in your own space and all that kind of thing. So um, from a personal level, that's what, that's what excites me about this kind of technology. Well, I love working with people like you that bring so much passion and energy to what we do and, and, and do it for the right reason. So I'd love to thank you for uh, joining me here. I think it was an excellent conversation, and I look forward to giving it a list at some point in the near future. Ben, thanks awesome. a lot. Yeah, thank you, Tyler. All right. My friends, I hope you enjoyed the first episode. I want to wish special thanks to our guest, Ben Norman, execution leader of Strategic Technologies Incubation at Schneider Electric, as well as you, the listener, for investing your time and attention in our discussion and for joining us on our brief trip to Westeros. It was a fun trip, but maybe it's time to learn from another group of people on another chaotic plot of land. I have a riddle for you. What is something that is different for every single one of 7.4 million people in New York City? but at the same time common among all of them. Stick with us and you'll find out in the next story up. I am so excited to develop, produce, and host the Schneider Electric Next Story Up podcast, and most importantly to share it with a listener like you, possessing the same interest and passion in promoting smart building services for the benefit of all. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. I'm Tyler Hake. So my my favorite band is Opeth, which is a Swedish, and they kind of they kind of go between genres. They started as a pretty serious death metal band, and over time they've gotten more and more progressive, and they blend a lot of like softer bits with the heavier bits, which I really like. I like Amata Marth a lot, which is a Viking metal band, just because it's it's super fun. A couple of other like prog metal bands, High on Fire is really good. Oh man, now I'm thinking of like way more metal bands. <laughs>
Uh, there's like Burnt by the Sun, Insomnium is really good, Enslaved is really good, uh, From Exile is really good, Camelot is really fun, they're kind of more of a power metal band, Catatonia is really awesome, they're another kind of dark melodic metal band from Sweden. Um, it goes on and on, it really does. All right, well, I'll, I'll make sure they all get proper representation, how about that? Uh, sure. I think it's, this is going to be like an after outro kind of thing, like a little bonus bit. Or... Heck, it, it can be whatever I want it to be. I'm running the show. 